Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about the next wave of education and the people behind this change. The world moves exponentially faster every day and the face of education is finally catching up. Entrepreneurs of the future will need a radically different educational experience than those who came before. So what can we expect from this game-changing new wave? Aaron Tate is the co-founder and director of innovation at Education Changemakers, co-founder of the Spark International Accelerator and YGAP, a global leader in innovation for impact, co-author of the widely published book Edupreneur and FYA Social Entrepreneur of the Year 2015. Edupreneurs, the people changing education, a Florence Guild conversation with Aaron Tate. A bit of a background of, of me. Um, I was born in New Zealand, so I was up at three o'clock this morning watching the America's Cup come home to New Zealand, which is really exciting. <laughs> Um, I said um, on Facebook, maybe if all the Australian sailors actually sailed in Australian boats, then it would be here, um, because most of the Team USA guys are Australians. But um, my family is a working class family. Uh, my, all my grandparents arrived in New Zealand by boat from you know, war-torn Europe. And we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of hustle. So one of the basic pillars of my family is three boys, mum and dad. Um, was we always started businesses. So we, um, from a very young age, we were, you know, helping mum and dad renovate, beat up old houses that we were living in and then we would sell. Um, we were starting businesses on the weekend. We were always trying to come up with a way to kind of, as a family, get out of um, a working class situation and, and we would use that money to travel. So we would save the money up uh, and, and travel. So as a teenager and as a kid, I was traveling around Southeast Asia with my parents, which gave me a, a big passion for social justice, and that sort of informed a lot of my work later on. Another thing my family taught us was um, grit. So I, as a you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old, would go out into the bush with my father for a week at a time, and we would hunt. Um, we would hunt pigs and goats and possums and all sorts of things. We were paid by the, um, the land council in New Zealand to do that with these introduced species. And we get paid with the amount of tails we could bring back. Um, but we'd be you know, deep in the New Zealand forest and we're four days walk from the car. And dad would teach me as an 11 year old, like you're a long way from home right now. And you can't just kind of call time out, you just have to get home. So that grit was really important for us as well. And we talk a lot about um, how do you train kids with grit? And it doesn't have to be you know, a military style training, um, but it's a big thing that I'm gonna be thinking about when my kids come along. Um, the best school I ever went to was a public school in New Zealand. Um, I went to a, a private school in Western Australia when we moved here as a family, but um, it was an amazing public school. Um, I spent 95% of my time in extra kind of um, accelerated classes. Uh, they were always looking for talented kids to do different things, and that was coming from a, a public school, which was really interesting. Um, I moved into 
I joined the military as a 17-year-old. I wanted to be a peacekeeper that would work for the UN and, and um, bring peace to the world. I'd grown up in a, in a generation where I saw people wearing blue berets on, on TV and going into East Timor and places like this. And actually, from my suburban Perth life, that was what I wanted to do. Um, but I made the mistake of joining the military with that intention, so free degree and a peacekeeping career. Um, and I joined in January 2001. Uh, I was on the last night of my Navy diving course when 9-11 hit, and I went to Iraq on September the 12th. So I went eight hours after 9-11 hit. I turned 18 on the way up there um, and got involved in some pretty heavy things at a very young age up there. So that kind of um, sparked this desire to... I basically felt like what I did up there was horrific. Um, directly and then indirectly. Hundreds of thousands of people were, died, basically, because our mission, my 14-man team, uh, was to destroy their economy, shut down their economy. The way that you do that is a maritime force. Any ship coming out, you get them. Any ship coming in, you get them as well. And you get them aggressively. Um, at night, guns up, sparks flying, helicopters flying around. It's, it's all pretty full on. So that... Coming back from that experience with a whole raft of things, you know, post-traumatic stress and, and, and this question as a young man of, was that good? I wanted to be a peacekeeper. That sparked a desire to um, try to do good. And I thought while I was in the military, I could study that. I could learn about how to do international development, learn about community development. So I did two master's degrees in the military. So I'd sort of be on operations, come back, buy my sailors a round of beers and then go and pump out five essays and then go back into operations. Um, did two master's degrees in the military and then did a third master's degree a bunch of years later at Cambridge University. And I, I learned a lot from those experiences and I loved them, but when I was at Cambridge, I was offered to do a PhD. And they, I turned it down because A, my wife was from California and hated the Cambridge winters. Um, but B, I decided that I didn't want to be a criticizer. I was happy to be the criticized. And I found that all the work that I was doing at Cambridge, writing my research and my thesis and these sorts of things, I was just criticizing ideas. And I'm not saying that's for all academia, but for personally for me, I felt like I want to go and do stuff. And if people want to po poke fingers at me and criticize me, I'm okay with that. Um, I, in 2007, I moved to Kenya um, and ran a HIV orphanage for a year in Kenya and then ran a, a school for street kids in Tanzania for a year. And I went in as the, as the white kid with degrees under my belt. You know, I'd, I'd been to a, a couple of Coldplay concerts by then. I'd seen, some, I'd seen some Angelina Jolie movies. Like, I was so fired up. You know, I'd read Jeffrey Sachs' End of Poverty three times. Um, I was totally convinced that we could end poverty in a generation um, and that I was going to be part of that. I, in fact, I was going to be a hero in that, you know. And moved over to this slum in Tanzania, and without going too long into that story, basically had my ass kicked um, by a bunch of street kids. So um, running this school for them uh, at the six-month mark, a whole bunch of the kids just, just threatened to kill me. And I learned from this experience um, that the answers were never going to come from me, that I couldn't go into a... Into a, a developing community and fix it as a white outsider, that the ideas had to come from the people who lived in those communities. Um, and I didn't learn that from Cambridge, I didn't learn that from, you know, 
military leadership school, I learned it from a bunch of street kids, that the ideas have to come from them. So the mantra for me is um, the only thing more powerful than ownership is authorship. That we want to see change in the world, but change has to come from the people who have a lived experience of that problem and who want the change more than we could ever want it as an outsider. And that, um, that idea really informed the, all the work that I do now. So my wife and I, we, we launched the Spark Accelerator and that was basically, this was, we didn't even know, uh, we'd never heard the term accelerators, we didn't know about the VC world or anything like that, we'd just been development workers for a bunch of years in Africa and our basic question was can we go into the toughest slums and villages, find amazing local leaders and back their ideas? And that, um, that sort of changed over time to backing entrepreneurs because the business guys were getting better results than the nonprofit guys. And we basically became much better at that over, the, over time by learning as we went. So just like our entrepreneurs were pivoting, we were pivoting too. And to be honest, we started super raw. We started in Papua New Guinea. We had about six grand in the bank um, as, a, as a nonprofit. I was a, a bartender at the Opera Bar in Sydney. Um, and my wife was a nanny. Uh, and we had seven degrees between us. <laughs> and um, and the, our first Spark program was like, we'll find five leaders in Papua New Guinea and we'll back their ideas. They'll all be fourth year university students. It's perfect. We've worked on it for a year at Cambridge. This is ready to go. Um, of the five, you know, four of them ate our sandwiches and never did anything. And one of them blew our minds. Um, he literally changed a community for, of 5,000 people, got healthcare, market access, schools, unbelievable what this one guy did. So in our first year, two lives have changed. Two kids went to university. In the second year, 390 lives have changed. So some people were getting clean water now and some people were going to university. A school was being built. Year three, that was at 3,900. Year four is at 37,000 lives changed. And all the entrepreneurs we work with, they have less than 100 people impacted. Um, and they have less than about five grand of revenue, so they're super early stage. Uh, year, year four, that 37,000 mark, we merged with YGAP here in Melbourne. Um, you may, some of you may know YGAP. They run Feast of Merit and the Polish Man campaign and these sorts of things. They had a really strong fundraising team and um, they didn't have a great impact model. We had a really great impact model and not a great fundraising team. So it's pretty rare in nonprofit to merge. Um, but we tried to put our egos aside and, 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 and bring something together. And it hasn't been easy. No mergers are easy, um, particularly in nonprofit, because when you're a business, you sell your company, you get a cash payday, and then everyone's happy. And there's some you know, things that, that are difficult along the way, but you've got a big chunk of cash in your pocket, so you can probably deal with it. With a nonprofit, you don't have that, so you've got to work through the challenges in, in different ways. But we went from, we had one employee, they had one employee. We now have, you know, 67 employees across five countries. We had a $100,000 budget before we merged. We now run with about um, 5 million a year. Um, so things really grew. And impact went from 37,000 lives changed to more than 400,000. And we'll be at a million in the next, probably the next 15 months. So that was the nonprofit. Um, and then launched a, an organization called Education Changemakers, a company, we're a B Corp. Because um, I met a guy called Dave Faulkner, who was an amazing principal here in Australia. He was a principal at 24 years old um, in, in the re remote Western Australia. At 27, he was um, invited to run Halls Creek District High School, which was the worst school in Australia the day he took it over, and did amazing things turning that around. So he said, what you do in African communities, finding these great local leaders, I do in the outback of Australia. 
I find people like Luca, who's here. Luca was a principal at 27, lived in a community called Mimili, speaks five languages, two of them are the local indigenous languages, took retention of teachers in his school from seven months to three years. So Dave was finding guys like Luca and backing their ideas. So he said, what you do in Africa, I do in Australian schools. So let's do it at scale together. Um, so in our first year, we worked with like 25 teachers uh, in Alice Springs and here in Melbourne. Last year, as a, as a team, we worked with about 25,000 teachers all around the world. Um, and basically, our belief at Education Changemakers is the best solutions will almost always come from teachers or school leaders. Again, people with a lived experience of the problem. So um, we do that in a couple of ways. We work alongside teachers to help them identify problems and come up with great solutions. We also work with um, ed tech startups as well to help them grow their ideas. So that's sort of where we're at now and what we do. Um, we, we're lucky, we, we chair the BET conference in London, which is the world's biggest education conference. Um, and we speak all around the world, so we get to see a lot of the things that are happening. So there's a, a bunch of trends that we're really excited about and some things that we're kind of nervous about as well. Um, the, the word educere, which is the core of, it's a Latin word, which is the core of the word education, it actually means to lead out. So it's this notion of you have a child and you're walking alongside them to lead them out. Um, whether that's out of childhood, out of naivety, whatever you choose to be, but we've got to sort of ask ourselves the question, what are we leading them into? Like what future are, they, are we preparing them for? Our children or our students or citizens in our community? They reckon kids, and there's a great FYA report that, that they put out um, last year um, around this. They reckon kids who are in school now will have 17 jobs in their career. And we would hear that and go, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of awkward job interviews, a lot of awkward first days. Um, but I don't think they'll think like that. And, and they probably won't even be in a physical office um, unless they pay for a membership here with you guys. <laughs> um, half of the current jobs in the market um, will be fully automated within 10 to 15 years. Um, by robots. And people go, oh, but that's the manufacturing jobs. It's not. Um, obviously transport, um, accountants uh, are one that's going to be disrupted pretty quickly. Even lawyers. Um, a robot can probably scan through precedents much faster than a 27-year-old legal clerk will do that. Um, so we're going to see some, some big disruption there. Um, innovation's paying off. Right now, if you have you know, innovation and problem-solving skills in your bucket, as an individual, you'll earn about $9,000 more than someone that doesn't. Um, and that's only going to change. It's the people, who, the people whose jobs are safe are the ones who can create and innovate and work together across cultures. Um, 3D printing is going to get fascinating. So in, you know, at the moment, we like a pair of sunglasses. We look at them online. They are made in Italy. They're shipped you know, through Singapore, and they come to us. And five days later, we get them. Um, now, in a couple of years, we'll like a pair of Ray-Bans, we'll click print, and then we'll walk out of the house with them on. What's that going to do for shipping and all sorts of things? We work actually with um, the top guys at Australia Post, and they're freaking out about this at the moment. Um, if, if a huge amount of their shipping goes in the future, what happens? Um, but that brings a lot of opportunities for schools. We like that bit of equipment, bang, we've got it You know, 12 minutes later. And schools at the moment are just going into this. They have a 3D printer. They're not quite sure how to use it. Gathers a bit of dust. They, every now and then they print like a little figurine, but that's sort of the extent of the way they can use it. But this stuff will increase pretty quickly. Um, virtual reality and augmented reality is fascinating as well. You know, usually, or in the past, it's been you can only engage with 
the Louvre and, uh, you know, Michelangelo statue if you go to Melbourne Girls Grammar and your parents pay the $19,000 to send you to Paris. Um, soon, you can put on a virtual reality headset and an augmented reality, you can see the statue of David. You can slap him on the ass if you want. Um, there's all sorts of things that people can do. You can learn the violin using this, this stuff without paying the $600 for the violin. So this is going to democratize education a lot, virtual reality and augmented reality, which is going to be really, really fascinating. Um, how much is too much? Like, how much do we want kids on, on their screens? And I think a lot of parents are fighting back on that at the moment. And we don't want our kids doing this all the time. Um, I saw an ad the other day, which was an Uncle Toby's ad, where a kid was on his device, and then he ate at Uncle Toby's muesli bar, and suddenly he wanted to be in the outdoors. So um, <laughs> maybe Uncle Toby's will save us on that one. Um, trends that we're seeing at the moment, um, democratization of learning, uh, which is really, really interesting. Um, you, in the past, learning came from, uh, excuse the stereotype, but elderly white male professors who wrote books that big publishing companies then published. Schools then bought those books at quite a high rate, and kids learned from those textbooks. We're now seeing massive democratization of learning. So the information is now out there. And, and kids are accessing it in different ways. So that's exciting. You know, that means that kids can access more stuff and more knowledge. The, the scary part of that is we're seeing a lot of English teachers saying, my kids are submitting all their essays and all their references are buzzfeed.com. <laughs> so how do you kind of in, like have high quality learning, but also really democratized? And how does a kid have this little, um, Sugata Mitra calls it this little machine that can call bullshit, that can say, hang on, is the New York Times better than news.com.au? Uh, which one should I listen to here? Um, games and toys are getting really interesting. So a lot of tech companies are gamifying things with badges and competitions and all sorts of things. We've seen it for years with mathletics and, and those sorts of things. Um, but that's increasingly becoming a, a big thing. So we're seeing education gamifying quite a lot. Um, there's more shiny stuff. There's more technology in schools. Microsoft just bought Minecraft a couple of, about a year ago, um, which is a massive deal. Uh, so uh, my wife, who's a teacher, had a great analogy for this. She said, doesn't matter how fancy your teapot is, you've still got to make good tea. So we go into schools and, they, and we say, what are you doing with technology? And they say, we bought iPads for every kid. We said, great. Like, what is that trying to achieve? And they said, you know, one-to-one -one devices. And we go, what, like, what's the problem here? What are you actually, how are you using those? Um, so it doesn't matter how fancy your teapot is, you've still got to make good tea. So technology is going to be a, a support and an enabler, um, but we still think there's a great role for the teacher as a facilitator and a, as a carer and these sorts of things. So technology and teachers is going to be a bit of a clash at the moment because some groups are coming in saying, this replaces the teacher, we don't need them anymore, um, which is going to be quite interesting. My favorite word at the moment is fidgetal, which is the, you know, the, the, the physical and the digital. Um, Pokemon Go is obviously a very powerful example of that um, in the last 12 months, but we'll see that more and more in the classroom, that kids can be transported to centers of learning from all around the world, from their classroom or from their home. Um, so that's going to be a really interesting use of stuff as well. Um, as kids get more online, learn through communities and those sorts of things, we're going to see parents more and more concerned around who their kids are meeting online. Um, we had a school that was trying to engage parents more in what they were doing. And the most oversubscribed event they've ever had at the school was, the title was, 
your kids are meeting strange people online. <laughs> and boom, every parent was there. So this is kind of a thing we've got to think about at the moment. Security, but also um, community and, and democratization of learning there. Um, new players are fascinating right now. So Pearson, you know, one of the biggest education players in the world, they lost $2.5 billion last year. And then you see Khan Academy coming in, and you know, they're at now 40, 45 million kids a day using their platform for free. So there's really interesting new players that are coming in um, that we're really excited by. Uh, Google Education wasn't really a big thing five, six years ago. They're now in half of American schools. There's 30 million kids using Google every day. We do a lot of work with Microsoft around the world. They're not that scared about Apple. They are terrified of Google. Because um, Google's coming in and, and doing what Google does and providing intuitive products that people love, and they're doing it for free. So this is, um, these are sort of the new players that we're seeing. And the, um, China is fascinating as well. We were just over there. There is literally like hundreds of thousands of schools in China. Um, parents, on average, will spend 15% of their family's income on their kids' education. Um, and everyone thinks, oh, but in China, we hear this a lot, oh, but they just do rote learning. They just get told the textbook and then they get good results. We're seeing a massive shift right now in deeper learning, problem-based learning. We're seeing middle-class Chinese parents say, what does my kid want to do in the future rather than I want them to do this? So China's going to be very, very interesting. Um, and obviously the tech companies in China, they're, they're amazing and they're huge and they're pushing out the other players. So Google left China years ago, um, beaten by Baidu and these sorts of groups. So we're going to see a lot of stuff coming from China into our markets rather than us having the arrogance of, oh, the Chinese will love our products. Um, India being the same as well. So things that really excite us at the moment, um, the, the, a lot of people are working on very high quality education, but it's super expensive. And um, other people are working on super affordable education, like Bridge Academies in Kenya, which is opening a new school every three days. And they, parents pay what they can afford. Um, but the quality is, is, is in question at the moment. So there's this sweet spot, and no one's really cracked it yet. But if someone does, it'll change the world. High quality education, highly affordable. The closest I've seen so far is still a very small uh, example of this, but it's a school that is actually one of our alumni in South Africa. Um, started by a girl called Noni Messina, um, and she's the child of a domestic worker. Grew up in Sakane, which is a township in South Africa, and probably lived on about $3 a day as a family. Only kid to ever go to university from her school. When we met her, she was running tutoring programs in the, in the, high school, in the school holidays for kids from her community. And we said, what's really your dream, Noni? And she said, my dream is a world-class education for every kid in Africa. And I said, ah, easy. <laughs> uh, where do you want to start? And she said, well, I'll start with one school. So we helped her launch the African School for Excellence. In the last few years, they have performed so well that they are now a third of the cost of a public school per student per day. And they're beating every school in South Africa academically. Every school. And some of these schools, you know, the old-fashioned ones with the castles and the lawns and the rowing teams and the rugby teams, they're creaming them academically. A third of the cost of a public school beating every school academically. They did the Cambridge exams, and Cambridge University actually emailed them and said, we don't believe these scores. We think you've cheated. And she said, well, one of my investors actually is a Cambridge grad, so why don't you come down and see what we're doing? And they were literally, their mouths were open. They said, you're beating every kid in South Africa, and your kids are from the slums, 
you're beating all these schools, but you're actually beating most of the schools in England as well. So that's really exciting. If we can figure out a way to do this even cheaper and at scale with them, we'll open these things like, like Starbucks, you know, thousands of them across, across the continent, and they can work everywhere, and they'll make money. So that's really, really exciting. Deeper learning, um, problem-based learning, inquiry-based learning, these are not new things, um, but it's getting a, a momentum now that's really exciting. One of our favorite schools is High Tech High in San Diego. High Tech High, I asked um, Laura, and she's coming out in a few months, the High Tech High team to Australia to hang out with us. I said, at High Tech High, what do you do in a sentence? And she said, we ask non-Googleable questions. And I said, how does that work in a classroom? And she said, all right, so I'll say to my kids, where are all the ATMs in San Diego? And the kids go out and they map it all and they come back, they're thinking, oh, we're done with this. It's such an easy task, Ms. McBain, it was easy. And they present, they're in a Socratic discussion in a circle, and they present a map of all the ATMs in San Diego. And she goes, all right, thanks for the map, appreciate it. Let's have a, just a couple minutes of silence and then we'll look at this map. And then let me know what you think about it. And they sit there silently looking at it. And then a kid will pipe up and say, it seems like all the ATMs, like 70% of the ATMs, are in the rich suburbs. And Laura McBain, this teacher, will say, huh, why? And that's a term of work. That question, why, turns into mathematics, business studies, social justice, history. Um, these kids are on the steps of, of the local politicians lobbying for this stuff. They're meeting with CEOs. It's unbelievable what they're doing through this deeper learning stuff. So High Tech High is, is a great example of that. What's the documentary, Luca? Most Likely to Succeed. Most Likely to Succeed is, um, is a great documentary that shows that school. AI is really interesting. So we're seeing, there's a group called Century Tech in London, that AI is serving up what they think a child needs. So you have 30 kids in a class, and it will literally be, no kid will be doing the same um, lesson. It'll be serving up, this kid needs history, this kid missed algebra, so they need that um, fixed as well. So it'll be serving up a personalized learning plan for every kid. Um, that's a group called Century Tech. A group doing that in mathematics in Australia is one of our, in, our ventures actually that we've incubated called Maths Pathway. Um, usually a kid in Australia will progress 0.6 years for every year they're in mathematics. So they're losing 0.4 of year every year. Um, on Maths Pathways, they progress a minimum of 1.2 years every year. And it's the same price as the textbook, and it's way better. So um, that's the stuff we're seeing where AI can serve up what a kid needs, plug the gaps, and make them learn way faster. So there's no real reason why school should take 12 years, or a degree should take three or four. Um, if AI can serve this stuff up much quicker. Um, and the final thing that excites me the most is um, teacher-led innovation. The best stuff we are seeing in the world is coming from teachers and school leaders, and that's the movement that we're part of trying to grow. Um, we run the EduChange Festival later this year in Melbourne. It's a week long, about 30 events. Um, we'll see a thousand of the best teachers and, and school leaders from around Australia. We'll bring in amazing people from all around the world and it's for the doers. Most education events in Australia, again, um, white, male, elderly, academics, talking to the crowd. Um, this, you hold a microphone if you're a doer. Um, so it's the practitioners and the doers sharing their ideas. Um, some final tips. Uh, if you are doing something in education, be it a teacher, a school leader, or an entrepreneur, or a philanthropist, um, one tip for me is, have the courage to be the whole bowl of pasta. 
we see a lot of groups that I would call palmers and cheese. They go like, oh, we're working on this thing. It's super exciting. And I go, yeah, but it's like, it's, it's, it's just like a, sh a shaving of cheese on top. It like makes it slightly more tasty. And I said to not anyone working with her, I love you because you're the whole bowl of pasta. You're saying, I will provide a world-class education for my kids. So if you're doing something, have the courage to do the whole thing, to provide a holistic education. It's gutsy, and a lot of people don't think like that in entrepreneurship. They think, I'll oh, just did this little, it's the kind of one to two thinking. Um, we're looking for people who want to do the zero to one to say, in fact, we think it can be a better way, and we want to, we want to change what we're doing. You don't always have to do that, but that, they're just the groups that really excite me. Um, the second bit of advice, if you're moving to, into this, is can your swimming instructors swim? So there's a lot of uh, accelerators, incubators, business programs, books that you can learn about this stuff from, but you probably want to learn from people who have done it in education. I have the least education experience in our team. Um, all of our team are, are amazing teachers, award-winning school leaders and principals, so you want to be learning from those guys. Um, if you're doing education stuff. Yes, get some insights from other people, but learn from people who've succeeded in education. It's like going to the AIS to be a basketballer and then saying, oh, your basketball coach doesn't exist. Here's a high dive instructor, all the best. Um, so try to ser search out um, people who are doing stuff in education. In Australia, it's probably us, a group called EduGrowth. Um, in the US, Y Combinator has an education stream and there's a couple of other um, groups as well there. And um, if you want to do something in education, our biggest bit of advice if you're an entrepreneur is do it um, with a teacher in your team. So people come to us and go, I've got this great idea. And we go, who's the founding teacher or educator in your team? They go, we haven't got one. So cool, go find one and then come back to us. So there's some things that we're seeing. There's some things that excite us. Um, there's some sort of reasons why I do what I do. Um, we're just scraping the surface of this right now because we were on stage about uh, four months ago with Ken Robinson. And he said, my job is to disrupt. Uh, he's, I think the most watched TED talk of all time um, is his talk. He said, I disrupt. I tell you guys why education should change and, and what should change. But education change makers will teach you how to do that. So where our goal is to equip a generation of teachers and school leaders who stand up and grab education by the horns and change it. And encourage a generation of politicians and academics to say, actually, hand it to the teachers. Let's see what they can do. So there's some ideas. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.